Imagine that you are a lawyer. Your work involves managing files with dense technical text. Your coworkers collaborate with you to accomplish a complex goal that can be broken down into smaller pieces. Your work has formal specifications, but there are degrees of freedom in how you express an idea. In all of these ways, the job of a lawyer is similar to the job of a software engineer. So why don't lawyers use tools to improve their workflow like software engineers do? As a software engineer, you have project management tools like Asana that improve collaboration. You have APIs like Stripe that reduce the time spent on a complicated implementation. You have tools like linters and source control that prevent you from making fatal errors. All of these tools save you time. At many law firms, lawyers do not have that incentive to save time. They're paid based on billable hours and not individual milestones. Historically, this hourly billing made sense. Lawyers have been around since long before computers, and the amount of work that might go into a legal task was hard to predict before you had computers to log data and sort documents and standardize communications. In contrast, a software engineer has always had the ability to automate work. That's why, in most cases, we're not rewarded based on our time spent solving a task. We're paid based on hitting our KPIs and our milestones. With the legacy of hourly billing, lawyers can look at repetitive and administrative tasks as opportunities to make more money. Justin Kahn has been building startups for a decade, and in that time he's interacted with lots of lawyers. From incorporation to fundraising to selling his company Twitch, the interactions with lawyers consistently seemed less transparent and less efficient than would be optimal. For an engineer like Justin, the natural inclination here was to build software and sell it to lawyers. But there would be so much resistance. You would have to convince the lawyers to change their pricing model to fixed pricing, which would give them the incentive to buy software and to work more efficiently. Instead, Justin teamed up with a few entrepreneurial lawyers who were willing to start a new law firm from scratch and use software on day one. The software company is called Atrium Legal Technology Services, or Atrium LTS for short, and the law firm that uses the software is Atrium LLP. Both of these companies are very new, and they were publicly announced a few months ago. The two companies work side-by-side in undecorated office space in downtown San Francisco. When I took the elevator up to see the company, the elevator doors opened and revealed two paper signs pointing to opposite ends of the office. On the Atrium LTS side of the office, engineers were writing software to extract the meaning from documents. Today, lawyers at old law firms are paid hundreds of dollars an hour to fill in document templates by editing a text document. As the Atrium LTS software gets better, document preparation will be done through web applications, with the variable names disambiguated from the parts of the document that never change from client to client. On the other side of the office sat Atrium LLP. The legal team was dressed a little more formally than their engineering counterparts on the other side of the office, but there was nothing close to the formality of a traditional Silicon Valley law firm. It was far from the decor of the Menlo Park law firms, and the office space was actually more spartan than most well-funded startups, signaling to the employees that this is an unproven business strategy, and there is a ton of work to be done to validate it. 
This sentiment was echoed in my conversation with Justin. It's possible and even plausible that Atrium LLP could become the biggest law firm in the world, powered by the software of Atrium LTS. But the road to getting there will take patience and steady execution. I enjoyed hearing Justin explain the motivation for starting Atrium LTS and Atrium LLP, and I look forward to covering the company more in the future. We've done several shows about the intersection of software engineering and law, including our show Dissecting Software Antitrust with law professor Harry First. To find all of our old episodes, you can download the free Software Engineering Daily app for iOS and for Android. In the other podcast players, you can only access the most recent 100 episodes, but with the Software Engineering Daily app, you can find all of our back catalog and get recommendations based on your listening history. With these apps, we're building a new way to consume content about software engineering. You can also find the desktop application at softwaredaily.com. And these apps are open sourced at github.com slash softwareengineeringdaily. If you're looking for an open source project to get involved with, we would love to get your help. Shout out to today's featured open source contributor, Craig Holiday. Craig has worked on the Software Engineering Daily iOS app to iron out performance issues and implement features like two times playback, so you can listen to this episode in half the time. Big thanks to Craig and his brother Keith for all of their work and their contributions to the open source community. With that, let's get on with this episode. The octopus, a sea creature known for its intelligence and flexibility. Octopus Deploy, a friendly deployment automation tool for deploying applications like .NET apps, Java apps, and more. Ask any developer, and they'll tell you that it's never fun pushing code at 5 p.m. on a Friday, and then crossing your fingers, hoping for the best. We've all been there. We've all done that. And that's where Octopus Deploy comes into the picture. Octopus Deploy is a friendly deployment automation tool taking over where your build or CI server ends. Use Octopus to promote releases on-prem or to the cloud. Octopus integrates with your existing build pipeline, TFS and VSTS, Bamboo, TeamCity, and Jenkins. It integrates with AWS, Azure, and on-prem environments. You can reliably and repeatedly deploy your .NET and Java apps and more. If you can package it, Octopus can deploy it. It's quick and easy to install, and you can just go to octopus.com to trial Octopus free for 45 days. That's octopus.com, O-C-T-O-P-U-S dot com. Justin Kahn is the CEO of Atrium LTS. Justin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks for having me. In the 1990s, the biggest financial cost to starting a company was often servers. Today, the servers are pretty cheap, but something that remains expensive is legal. What are the common ways that a startup has to interact with a law firm? Well, basically every company has to interact with lawyers for every major financial transaction. It's kind of the operating system of business in America. And so, you know, you always have to interact with it. 
uh, whenever you do anything really big. So if you raise money, uh, you generally pay lawyers. If you sell your company, you pay lawyers. If you do a major commercial transaction, you want someone to review it, you pay lawyers. So pretty common. And, and I would say it's a very, you know, very, it's an inescapable thing, kind of like death and taxes. Mm-hmm. The legal industry itself has not been transformed by technology in the same way that some other industries have. Why is that? So, like you alluded to earlier, legal costs have actually only risen in you know in the past twenty years, pretty much across the board for for big corporate law, but also uh, you know you could say localized to startups as well. And so, one of the questions might be why why is that the case, right? Why um, they're doing you know, the Series A uh, today versus 20 years ago, it's mostly the same thing. Generally, prices fall. Uh, why have prices not fallen in legal? And uh, I think there's a bunch of different reasons for it. One of the main reasons is that there's very little process or technology improvement. The legal industry has a, a bit of an innovator's paradox, uh, right? A legal innovation paradox, which is that there's no incentive. When you bill on an hourly model, there's no incentive to improve efficiency over time. It's not that lawyers are trying to, you know, figure out how to charge uh, the most or bill clients, you know, the the most number of hours. It's just that you don't have an income, the incumbents don't have any incentive to figure out how to reduce costs through the adoption of better software practices or better software or even better process. And so what happens is um, they they don't actually adopt any software. And so there's a very, very little market for it. Mm Mm-hmm. What is the technology stack inside of a law firm? Outlook. <laughs> you know, it's like Outlook. <laughs> Our lawyers do all their work in Outlook and Word, uh, which are pretty robust tools, as, as you know, but um, pretty static. You know, there haven't been very many improvements in the past 20 years. And so I think that's that's uh, lawyers live in documents and email, and, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the, the tech stack they use. And then there's, you know, oftentimes a document management system mm-hmm. as well. You've started a bunch of companies and you've engaged with lawyers throughout those different companies. Is there a particular event that stood out where you said to yourself, this makes absolutely no sense? Or was it more of an accumulation of just minor inefficiencies and inconveniences? I would say it was just interacting with the industry over time. You know, I've been over the past 12 years in Silicon Valley, I've become what I call an involuntary power user of corporate legal services. You know, I had used them for all those events that we talked about, whether it was, uh, you know, selling company or uh, raising funding. And I wouldn't say there was, I actually wouldn't characterize my experiences as bad at all. Okay. Uh, I would say they were just okay. You know, some were yeah. better, some were worse. I liked using legal services when I felt like the a uh, lawyer was an expert who was giving me their expert opinion and advising me through something that was very complicated or, you know, that I, I I needed confidence that was going to go well. And I think that various times at various times I, I felt felt like it wasn't going as well when or I didn't like the service as much when uh, things were, you know, opaque. I didn't know what the process was or, the, you know, I would be billed what seemed like a random amount, a random high amount. So... So that's that's kind of like what led me to the idea for Atrium LTS was kind of asking, isn't there a better way to, to do this? Mm-hmm. So it wasn't really like, a, it wasn't one event. It was more of like, I'm sure this industry could be better. Mm-hmm. We'll get into the two 
businesses. One of them is Legal Technology Services, which is the set of services, software that you're building, and Atrium LTS, which is, as I understand, the first law firm that is dogfooding these services. Is that the am I, do I have the right framework? Well, so the Atrium LTS is actually well, is is our legal technology services company. Okay. That I'm, you know, the CEO of. It's a startup. We run it like a startup. Oh, I see. We have engineers, and they provide services to law firm owned by Augie Rayco and Bebe Chua, who are two lawyers. That's called that's a it's called Atrium LLP, and they serve clients in, you know, Silicon Valley, uh, startup clients. So that's kind of the relationship between these two entities. It's it stems from the fact that there's a bunch of regula- regulation around who can own a law firm and who can provide legal services. I'm not a lawyer. I've just been a like I said a power user, and so our goal was to within the bounds of uh, was to like have have a shorten the feedback cycle right and and actually remove the legal innovation paradox by having a firm that was built around uh, the idea that you could improve the delivery of legal services. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, Atrium LLP is that firm. Got it. Describe some of the services that you're building at Atrium LTS. So I would say it's a bunch of things. The, 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 The more interesting, the interesting product vision that we're building towards is what we call no documents. And I think that what I mean by that is that if you look at your company's data, it's all like the, the, the corporate data of your company, like who owns the company, what's the, who, who's the, who are the owners, who's on the board, what the board's done, uh, who are the employees, uh, what the employees are paid, all of this data, what the contracts are of the company and, and who's owed what, all this data is in PDFs and Word documents, right, right that are in maybe a box folder yeah. or a Dropbox folder. And most people... That's like not accessible to people, right? <laughs> yes. Like even to the company owners, they don't necessarily understand how to parse it. Um, they can't really extract the structured data very easily from that those documents. But those legal documents are the source of truth. They describe exactly what your company is mm-hmm. more than any anything else. Uh, and so what we're trying to build ultimately, the way I think about it, is something like a system that basically – Sucks in that all of that all of those all of those documents and turns them into structured data. Mm-hmm. So we understand your company. And for you know, if I put my engineer's hat on, I think that's like a very interesting problem because there's a bunch of you know scripting and machine learning tools that we use to build to, to extract that data. Mm-hmm. And then I think of that data as a platform for, on top of which you can actually build a bunch of interesting applications. Right? Mm-hmm. If you need to render a cap table for a financing. In Excel, that should be one button, right? Because you already understand like the existing capitalization structure of the company. You can build a document management system or contract management system on top of it. Uh, you can build a dashboard for the company owners that shows, you know, exactly like who's, you know, allows them to do a lot of things on top of their company, whether it's, you know, uh, initiate a board action or send an offer letter. Um, all of these things are basically actions on top of the existing data of your company. And I, and, and, ways to visualize or render that data. And I think that's pretty pretty powerful and like an existing a platform that hasn't existed for companies yet. Can you take anything off the shelf like a DocuSign API or a eShares, these other Absolutely. So I, I think that eShares is a great example of like this we could use this data extraction to basically hmm. automatically onboard you to eShares. Right. I, I love eShares as a you know investor and as a user. I I, I like eShares a lot. The onboarding process is manual because somebody has to put in all the data of like the capitalization structure of a company, right? 
for DocuSign, for example, or a HelloSign, we, we, we could build on top of those and actually allow, you know, we would use the APIs to, you know, send out these like board consents or something like that or a offer letter or whatever. Those, those could all be built on top of uh, the existing e-signing tools. So I, I think that ultimately I see it as like we're building this platform where we understand the structured data of your company and then we're building applications on top of that. Those applications probably have, you know, interact with other APIs and, and applications out there and other software that's out there. Auth0 makes authentication easy. As a developer, you love building things that are fun, and authentication is not fun. Authentication is a pain. It can take hours to implement, and even once you have authentication, you have to keep all of your authentication code up to date. Auth0 is the easiest and fastest way to implement real-world authentication and authorization architectures into your apps and APIs. Allow your users to log in however you want. Regular username and password, Facebook, Twitter, enterprise identity providers like AD and Office 365, or you can just let them log in without passwords using an email login like Slack or phone login like WhatsApp. Getting started is easy. You just grab the Auth0 SDK for any platform that you need and you add a few lines of code to your project. Whether you're building a mobile app, a website, or an API, they all need authentication. Sign up for Auth0, that's the number zero, and get a free plan or try the enterprise plan for 21 days at auth0.io slash sedaily. That's A-U-T-H dot I-O slash sedaily. There's no credit card required, and Auth0 is trusted by developers at Atlassian and Mozilla and the Wall Street Journal and many other companies who use authentication Simplify your authentication today and try it out at A-U-T-H dot I-O slash S-E daily. Stop struggling with authentication and get back to building your core features with Auth0. Could you maybe talk through what's an example document that you looked at and you said, okay, here's how we're going to architect uh, an algorithmic way of looking at this and extracting data from it uh, one one very simple like a trivial example kind of one that we're we've we built pretty early on is safe notes um, and convertible notes you know these are instruments where someone is in investing in a company in a non-equity round they're very common in silicon valley white combinator pop- popularized this idea of a safe simple agreement for future equity and the idea behind it is Basically, you're agreeing to buy equity in the future uh, so you can basically invest in a company without actually having to go through the process of doing an equity financing, which is you know expensive and takes a long time. And so these notes are all based off of a very small set of templates, right? And so it's actually very un- easy to, under- to like build something that extracts, like you know, takes these PDFs, breaks them open, extracts all the text from them, compares them against known templates, extract some real metadata from it, you know, the things like how much this person invested, what's their entity name, what's their address, their email address, and then obviously store those into a structured database, then take all that data. And like when you're going to do a actual Series A financing, one of the processes is understanding who's going to own how many shares at the end of the financing Mm -hmm. and building an Excel model that you can share among all the constituents, the lawyers, 
the company owner and founders and management, you know, you can share this model so they can see exactly who's going to own what. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, that whole process of extracting, all, like taking these safes, reading them, right, understanding them, um, and then being and then turning them into a Excel model is done by a an attorney right now. Mm-hmm. And that attorney, you know, bills five hundred dollars an hour to basically make this Excel model. Now, right. obviously, that's something that can be done programmatically, right? And that's what that's what one example of something that we're doing. Mm-hmm. It basically, turns you know extracts those saves like in the method I described, and then you know takes that, takes that structured data and then renders renders an Excel model based on it. Sure. Okay. So the safe note that is something that's very templatized because. Every startup in Silicon Valley that uses a safe note is going to use a, one of these templates that looks very similar. Yeah. Even operating agreements, I think, are, you know, some people have pretty off the shelf operating agreements that are, you know, you, and the, but nonetheless do have data that you would want to extract in somewhat st- a standardized dashboard format that would be useful. But across the board, in terms of wh- how people, engage with legal documents there's a wide array of and and that's certainly outside of silicon valley i assume it's less standardized is it or is it or is it still standardized when you when you step outside of silicon valley is it still templatized where you can have these well formatted documents and have expectations around where certain variables are going to be yeah i would say that so obviously the save is a very kind of very constrained example. Uh, right. There's other types of documents, you know, that we're building machine learning classifiers to actually um, categorize and, and, and requires a little bit more advanced pattern matching than just like comparing against known templates, right? Uh, I do think that depending on the practice area of law, there's more or less standardization, right? Uh, and so other practice areas, you know, like lease agreements for commercial real estate, it's like very similar thing over and over and over again. Fund formations, say, you know, same thing. Mm-hmm. So there's there are many other practice areas where I would say the same types of techniques can be under used to understand the structured data, uh, and those are the ones where I think we would have the most, you know, ability and advantage in actually trying to go into and build building applications for them. Yeah, yeah, but it is it's it's not. I think as I understood you know, preparing for this, LTS is not just about machine learning for law it's also about making the lawyers more productive in their job because i think for the foreseeable future there's going to be a lot of subjectivity in dealing with with legal documents you can't just unleash the algorithms and have them take care of everything what are some of the ways that you can make the job of the lawyer easier and automate away some of the uh the painful processes so People are always going to want a lawyer, right? When we were selling Twitch, we didn't want the Uber for lawyers. We didn't want a marketplace of lawyers. We didn't want an AI algorithm uh, lawyer. We wanted uh, lawyers who had experience selling, you know, billion-dollar transactions. And that is going to be common and and and, and uh, immutable, in my opinion, for the most valuable work. You know, you might incorporate your company on LegalZoom or Clerky or something like that, but ultimately when it comes to the big transactions, which are the valuable, lucrative transactions, people are going to want a real attorney who has experience. Someone who, from a, with a great background, uh, who went to a top law school and went to a top firm and, and uh, has worked on this type of transaction. And I don't think you can get away from that. And our, the goal you know, with uh, Atrium LLP is, is that Atrium LLP would be a top firm like that, that has that type of talent. And the legal, the software is really 
reducing work and also providing transparency and speed behind the scenes and maybe even parallel as well. So I, I, I think that's the, that's the core philosophy. It's not like creating an AI that replaces lawyers. It's, it's maybe creating some AIs and machine learning and scripting and, and software that does some of the base level work, the like trivial work, like document classifying, right? Like understanding all the default structured data, all that stuff is things that you don't need someone who went to Harvard Law School to do, right? And, and so I think that's, the, that's kind of the way I think about it. In yeah. terms of what, where we're going to get the actual work sa- like savings, I think it's in many different things. Um, and it's like kind of small savings in all these different areas, whether it's uh, rendering the first version of documents or whether it's giving more transparency to the customer so that they send less emails and texts, you know, like transparency into what is exactly being worked on, almost like um, – giving an interface onto the legal work that's similar to like a legal Asana or Jira. Right. You know? uh, I think that's something that even in the, in the industry today could adopt, but they don't really because there's no incentive to. And at Atrium LLP, are they adopting stuff like Asana? Do they use project management tools? Yeah, so using project management tools, yep. It, it's, uh, it's innovative for the industry, but you know, I think it's, uh, it's a good step forward. So, so they do use the the Atrium LLP uses project management tools. Yep. Awesome. And have they noticed? Have they said anything like, "Oh, this revolutionizes how we do our legal work" or anything like that? Like, what what's what's the feedback you're hearing? The feedback is good. You know, the feedback is good. Uh, I think we've managed. Uh, Atrium LLP is is comprised of many entrepreneurial lawyers who are, you know, especially younger lawyers who are excited about innovating and, and adopting new technology. And that is, is, you know, kind of reflected in how they approach it. Hmm. You can compare it to, at most firms, you know, the people who are in charge of the firm are the people who are most, you know, senior and, and oftentimes very ingrained and in doing things a certain way. And so oftentimes that's one of the reasons why there's this you know, lack of adoption of new software, even commercially available software that might be adopted in, in many other areas, not outside of the law, like like a, an Asana. How is the engineering org at LTS, Atrium LTS, structured? So the engineering org is, we have a bunch of different engineering teams, I would say, that, that correspond to different uh, legal functions, work with the lawyers very closely on different areas of, of, um, of the business. Uh, kind of on different different types of work that get that's done. So, Atrium LLP has a team that does financings, for example, and then there's there are engineers that work with that financing team as consultants and, and to basically build software for that uh, financing team that just works on kind of Silicon Valley style financings. And then there's another team that works on document intake and processing that's doing some of that document extraction and, and metadata extraction that I, I talked about. So we have like it's it's very cross functional uh, from an organizational standpoint. The difficulties seem more in product management than really hard engineering problems. Is that is that the case right now? I think that document extraction and and structured data side is actually a very interesting engineering problem. Hmm. I, I think there's two types of engineers that would well, there's probably three types of en- engineers that would want to work at Atrium at Atrium LTS. And those three engineers, the first is like kind of product engineers who want to build, kind of like you were saying, product engineers who want to work very closely with their customer, in this case, it's lawyers and paralegals, uh, to build products that are used every day and they can have a very short feedback cycle. So I, I think that's that's one set of people that it would appeal to. You know, you're sitting 
uh, nearby the the your, your best customer, right? And it's and it's possible for you to, you know, really get feedback on a very short short term basis and and roll something out and see change and see people like really be thankful. Uh, you know, you're talking about building stuff for an industry that really doesn't have a lot of like engineers building things for it. Right. The second type of work and an engineer who might be interested is really. I would say people who are focused on uh, who who want to build that platform, that data platform, and maybe work on machine learning. Uh, it's people who, you know, we have this interesting data set of c- corporate documents where, where where there's there's like all like I said, all the structured data of your company. It's like is described in this in this data set. And the other thing is about it, which I think is very interesting, is that the data set is is like it's a very I think it's a very good data set for is like as a as a machine learning problem because it's like very constrained actually in a lot of ways and so you know i think it's it's interesting to think about how you can build a platform uh, where you first of all extract this data and then you build applications on top like structure in a way that you could build applications on top of it mm-hmm. that's like the second type of engineer i think might be interested and then the third type is someone who's either been a founder or a very early stage engineer at a, at a startup because you know we are atrium LTS's mission is really to empower legal services uh, for startups to be faster, more transparent, and more with upfront pricing. And so, I think those you know people who have had that pain would be would be interested. Why is that upfront pricing model so important for Atrium LLP to be different? Yeah, I think it's very important for the adoption of new technology for us to have a a reason to to adopt it, right? For Atrium LLP is a, when you're on the hourly business model, you don't have any goal. There's no like incentive for you to like actually reduce cost. And part of reducing cost and being more efficient is like adopting new technology. And so one of the reasons you see these law, like, law firms not adopt new technology is there's no internal incentive. And so by having fixed pricing, it doesn't really matter whether it's higher margin or lower margin at first. What matters is your internal incentive is to innovate. Mm-hmm. and reduce cost. Mm-hmm. How similar are the operational day-to-day work, the cases for Atrium? Like, how similar is it to a normal law firm? I think that Atrium LLP's workflow is different behind the scenes, but the work product output ultimately is very is, is very similar to an existing law firm, right? The output is documents, it's review of documents. It's talking on the phone or email or email advising to clients, and so really a lot of the interactions are, you know, powered by the software behind the scenes. Hmm. Something that I have enjoyed about engineering is that we learn the tools for breaking down pretty much any concept in the world and understanding it. And it can take a long time, but as an engineer, you you figure out that. Almost anything is possible to understand, and this is the approach that you're taking to the law. You have no formal education in it. There's no reason why you should be starting a legal company. What has been your personal process for learning about the law? Sure. So, you know, I, similarly, I that's the reason I like engineering. I was always a pretty shitty programmer. Uh, I wasn't. <laughs> wasn't a, I was a self-taught programmer, right? So I. I was actually a good web developer. Uh, I said I say I was a good web developer and a, and a programmer, but I loved programming and building web apps because it unlocked my creativity. Yeah, uh, you could feel like anything was possible. You could build anything as long as you could I, think about how to structure it, right? 
and and define the problem and define define the outputs and the inputs, right? And so that's kind of the process. I, I would say we've taken a very engineering process to, towards uh, the creation of you know this like legal software and 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 services. And my you know thinking around it is is really like the the process I've I've gone through. I would say is like first I was like in, get, gathering data, right? Talking to tons of partners and lawyers out there and clients and investors. I'm like, what are the problems in the industry? Are are the problems that I experienced the same as the problems that uh, all these other that other people might have experienced? And really gathering like, what are the reasons why this is? You know, there's a lack of innovation. Why why aren't they using software? Why don't they even use CRM software or you know Asana or a lot of project management software? And then once I had like a really good mental framework for how the industry operated today, I was like, okay, how, what are the entry points where, where we could create something that affected this industry and changed it in a, for the better, right? To like provide these values of speed, transparency, and, and price predictability to startups. And so that's how I approached the problem. And then, and then you know, building a company, I think building this legal com- company is, is no different than building any other company, which is just to say, what are, you know, you're thinking about what are the problems uh, where do I, where do I want to be? You know, we want to get to a certain milestone, certain revenue milestone, certain number of, of um, customers, whatever it is, and then working backwards, like what are the biggest step barriers from getting there today, and what are the things that I need to do to affect those? You know, and often it, it all breaks down to pretty much always comes back to hiring great people and making sure they're focused on the right problems. Are there any areas of the law that you've tried to study? but they remain too difficult and too obscure and you just still feel like you don't get them? <laughs> I the, the funny thing is I actually, so I'm one of the like easy clients. I think I was one of the clients who never really read any legal documents <laughs> and didn't really dig in that much. I'd say, you know, legal for me was always a barrier between yeah. what I actually wanted to do, which was, you know, fundraising or selling a company or whatever. And it's just something I had to get through. And so... It's funny because I, I don't actually, I, I think I understand a lot now through working on, you know, HMLTS, I understand the steps of a Series A financing. I had actually raised, you know, millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars without actually understanding what the steps of Series A financing were. So, you know, I do, it's funny, I have like more knowledge, legal knowledge now, but that's not really my my interest. My interest is not, not the, I would say the content of the of like legal work is not my interest. My interest is applying engineering and product to affecting the delivery of that content to make it more efficient and make it a better experience for all the participants, whether it's the lawyer or the client. And so it's funny. I think that's funny because I actually like my, my, I'm learning much more about the like delivery of legal and the business of legal and the technology of legal than I am about the content of legal, which is what I, you know, that's what I'm interested in. a product that is sold to software engineers? Are you looking to hire software engineers? Become a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily and support the show while getting your company into the ears of 24,000 developers around the world. Developers listen to Software Engineering Daily to find out about the latest strategies and tools for building software. Send me an email to find out more, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. The sponsors of Software Engineering Daily make this show possible, and I have enjoyed advertising for some of the brands that I personally love using in my software projects. 
If you're curious about becoming a sponsor, send me an email or email your marketing director and tell them that they should send me an email. Jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. Thanks as always for listening and supporting the show. And let's get on with the show. Totally. I, you know, I, I was looking at, you know, some of the clients that uh, Atrium LLP has worked with so far. One of them that stood out was Protocol Labs, which is, they've made Filecoin and IPFS, and they'd had an ICO. Have you learned anything about how the law views ICOs? Yes, which is the, the Silicon Valley that law firms are mixed on ICOs. Some of them are very... Hey, it's you know we're going to support this and like do them, and others are like we don't want to touch that because we think there there are massive legal pro- you know securities law problems around it. I would say that right now there's it's a lot of unknowns and people have not tested this thoroughly against you know regulators and you know perhaps like against the legal framework that exists today. So uh, I I think it's mostly remains to be seen hmm. um, whether you know. And, and I think this is all compounded by the fact that many ICOs right now. I'm, not, I'm by no means an expert in yeah. uh, crypto. I am a you know pa- investor in, in uh, one crypto fund, Polychain, and and I've you know have some Bitcoin, but I'm not like I, I'm not someone who's like cutting edge and like up to date. I rely on my friends for that mostly. But I would say that I think I believe that like many of these ICOs that are happening right now are purely gold rush, and there's there's no reason for them to be. Like for their software to be a distributed ledger, right? They, like that—that that makes sense only for certain things, like like uh, certain use cases, right? Not every use case does it make sense for it to be a distributed ledger system. Not for not every use case does it make sense to have like a separate token of value, right? Like, mm. I, I think in, in Filecoin's case, it ma- it makes a lot of sense, but there's a lot of like companies like you know the the Kin token, for example, the with that kicks token they're like kick messenger oh, has this token yes, it's like yes, yes. well i don't understand what the economic point of creating a cryptocurrency is except to raise money for a hmm. you know corporate vehicle of course which i think is just if, if that's the case then it seems like purely a way to circumvent securities law yes okay yeah so so, so you think that the or are you just speculating, or do you have you had a sense from talking to people that? No, I'm just this, speculating. Okay. This is this is not based on my like. I have no. Okay. You know, I'm not. I'm, I have no. I, this is my business hat. You know, Got business it. person, Silicon Valley investor hat. Sure. It just seems like a lot of these things are. It's like kind of a gold rush, and a lot of the, them are, if not frauds, they're like there's no reason for there's no like actual technical and economic and business model reason for them to like actually be a sure. dis, uh, I, cryptocurrency. I mean, I see a, a new Twitter ad. For a new ICO every day. Yes, that that is sketchy. <laughs> to me, that's very sketchy. And I get emails that are like, you know, part- like cold solicitations to participate in this random ICOs, right? It's uh, yeah. So this this upfront pricing model that Atrium has, where you keep prices fixed on work. So if I'm a startup founder, I come to Atrium LLP and I say, hey, I need this task done. And Atrium tells me, here's the price up front. And that's great. That's a weight off my shoulders where otherwise, you know, I'm already worried about how much cash is in the bank. And if I have to also worry about, okay, hey, 
law firm, like random old world law firm, I need to get this task done. And they say, okay, cool. We'll let you know what it costs when we have it done in three weeks. That's a burden and I don't need any extra burden. So getting the prices fixed on work that is going to take a variable amount of time from case to case, that seems challenging, but it also reminds me of we did an interview with Gigster a while ago, and they do something kind of similar with their contracting model where they have you know big software projects that come to them, and they learn over time how to price these basically by tracking the data really closely. What's the approach to getting fixed prices on what have been variable-priced uh, purchases in the past? So I think there's probably two types of work. There's work that it's very like within a certain bell curve, uh, every time it's like more known and there's lots of data points. So that's work like series A financings, right? Or series B financings. Uh, Silicon Valley law firms who have been around for a long time will have like thousands of data points and they should be able to build a model that says, okay, given your parameters of, you know, the things that are coming, you know, like your, the firm, uh, how much money it is, like how many, what the complexity, like how many shareholders, incumbent shareholders you have, all this stuff. They should be able to build a model that says, here's the distribution of likely outcomes of how much work it's going to take mm. and we're going to just price it at the 80th percentile mark uh, or something like that but they don't because there's no incentive to and so i think it should be possible to build a model for many kinds of work uh, that that is um, based on the data that actually is accurate enough that you can basically absorb the risk of variance mm. and that's what we want to do so as i understand the model with HMLLP is this is the proof of concept of a set of practices and technology services that a law firm can adopt. What's the model for deploying that at other law firms? How much data do you need to collect within Atrium LLP to get other law firms enticed? Or are you already in conversations with people who are interested? No, I would say it's pretty pretty new and we need to prove, because lawyers are very resistant to changing their workflow, I think there's going to be like many proof points that we have to hit before other, you know, it's it's even functional at other law firms. So our goal really right now is to like learn and, and get data from like how how you can improve processes and what technology, you know, platforms we can build to to actually improve lawyers' work. And that's that's kind of where we're at right now. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. I'd say it's like, you know, that's the, our goal is to like just be, right now we're in the learning phase, I think. Hmm. It, has any part of the product development been harder than you anticipated? That's a good question. Has any of the pro- part of the product development been harder? Because I remember I, I, think, I, I saw an interview where you were talking about how you've been thinking about this, this building this company for a while. Yeah, I think that um, we are trying to do a large, a breadth of things right now, and so that is you know things are I think we're working on many different types of legal work for startups like tools for legal work for startups so so there's there's a little bit of a i think we need to we can make more progress probably if we constrain the scope to uh, fewer things and yeah. work on yeah and i think we might want to we might want to do that but <laughs> overall i wouldn't say it's like harder than um than anticipated it's pretty straightforward um i think there are in- interesting engineering challenges like i said on that kind of extracting structured data side but other you know that a lot of the other software is is, is like fairly straightforward in terms of how to develop it. Yeah, well, that that issue of focus, you know, that comes up a lot when you talk to different startups, and you know, doing doing multiple things at once is really hard. But similar, but I mean, the problem is that you're in a space where you want to 
sort of change the whole mindset of the space. It's not like where you know you're Amazon. You're like, okay, let's focus only on books first, and then it's very obvious how to laterally expand to DVDs. It seems like you need to go whole hog. I mean, is it, if you were to constrain the focus to so one thing specifically, like would it be safe notes or something? Is that? I mean, I think it seems I think, hard. I think there are two major pieces of software that that are very important. One is. Uh, you know the, the data extraction and platform, and uh, the second is the client-facing portal that gives them insight into what's going on in their legal work. And so those are probably the two things that we really need to make the most progress on. I think. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, what's the most grandiose vision of what LTS could evolve into? Uh, I think LTS could power the biggest law firm in the world. You know, I think HMLP could be the biggest law firm in the world, and, and LTS could power it, mm-hmm. and, and it could power many other law firms uh, outside of that. And, and that's kind of the that's kind of the the big vision. Uh, I think that this is a new model for unlocking you know 160 billion dollars of outsourced corporate legal spend, and you know that's my that's 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 my goal. When we when I started when I decided to like go back into starting a company. I had been investing and incubating companies for a couple of years, you know, partner at Y Combinator. Before that, started a bunch of companies. Twitch is the one that people know about. The, what really got me to go back and say, hey, I should be the CEO of a company again and, and really dive all in is that I really believed that this is a big market and a big opportunity. And I really want to try to build something that's bigger than Twitch. Mm. Yeah. So, okay. I, it's, and I think this market supports it. Yeah. it. Well, it's interesting. I thought that the model was to build technology and then give it to lots of other law firms, but I could see it being equally plausible where you just grow Atrium LLP. I think I think we try to grow Atrium LLP and also like try to figure out how we can sell mm. the software to other law firms as well. Um, I think those are parallel paths. But the goal is that legal revenue out there like the most we can we can have the largest amount of legal revenue flowing through this like lts software as possible Mm. if that makes sense yeah definitely so i do want to talk a little bit about twitch just because i've heard some random interviews where you were talking about some of the engineering issues at twitch but uh, i'd never heard anything where anybody went super deep but you know i know there was stuff there was a lot of custom software built like that's a serious tech company what were some of the engineering problems that you recall from Twitch? So I hadn't engineered anything on Twitch in, in a long time. So caveat everything sure. with that. And Twitch was built on top of the infrastructure that we use for Justin TV. So right. my, my most of my engineering work was from the Justin TV days. And then, you know, eventually it was reskinned into Twitch. And, and I think a lot of that course infrastructure stayed the, stayed the same. We were one of the biggest Ruby on Rails sites for a while, um, maybe still still are. Um, but that was a big challenge, actually. There were two probably big challenges. One was just the building the video video infrastructure. That was live video infrastructure was like not mature, and so we had to build a bunch of basically software around like the live video servers mm-hmm. that would route the video to various points of presence and kind of like grow the number of like. Uh, you know, of love of like, basically there'd be like the video would come into an origin, right. And then go out to like various slaves, like all over 
sometimes in the same data center, some in San Francisco, sometimes in multiple data centers, if it was a popular stream. The problem was like, because we were supporting streams that were so, that, that there were like, so some would be like 10 people watching, some would be like 100,000 people watching, right? And we actually didn't know a priori, unlike an Akamai, which pre-provisions, uh, we didn't know a priori which streams would be super popular or not, right? Mm. So you had to have this system that could be very reactive. And if a stream was getting really popular, it would populate it to many different slave streams, or sorry, servers, right, all over the world, right? And so that was a, that was a huge engineering problem that took a long time to get right uh, to, from a like stability and being robust standpoint. And uh, that was one big engineering problem. And then the other was just getting this like Rails site to scale. I mean, like Twitter had a huge amount of problems during the same time frame, like 2009, 2010. Just getting this like Ruby on Rails site to scale, we, we ended up building this like this basically middleware on Twisted that like basically cached, it like would ca- statically cache all these Rails pages because the application servers took forever to render. And then like inject the, it would have like a memcache store of like all the user data and it would inject, like we'd have these custom tags and it would like replace them with u- the user data. So it was actually like Rails would render the first, like the cat, the, the cache version. And then this like custom server would, would like in- interject the, the actual user data because uh, Rails was too slow at the time. I think there have been massive improvements now. You know, all of this is, you know, from almost 10 years, 2008 <laughs> to 2010, I would say, or 2008 to 2011. So, and that's how we scaled to, at the time, was like hundreds of millions of page views a month, you know, and that was big at the time. I'm sure it's like a drop in the bucket now. Yeah. That was, it was fun. I mean, I learned a lot about, a lot about engineering because, you know, like I hadn't been a uh, really formally trained, uh, I wasn't a CS undergrad. And, and I also, uh, you know, never, I never worked at like a, a, a big company or anything. We I, we'd started the, our first company right out of college, and so it was it was a good tutorial in kind of like engineering and engineering management for me. What are some takeaways from that from the management process? <laughs> I remember debug, debugging it. Well, the site would go down. Right, there's a live video site with like our peaks to valley ratio was like 35x to like one. Right, so it's like it was very hard to like scale. You can imagine, you know, most. Other sites are like you know what 1.52x and, and peak to like to trough yeah. usage, and so it was just crazy. Every time time something would fall over, it was like always one of six things. Right, it was like bandwidth to servers, like CPU, memory, like I, I, and so the site would go down. And I'd just be like, okay, let's look at Nagios, and it's like, okay, which like what is like what's getting here? You know, like it's it, oh, it's like IO. Or it's like we can't like write fast enough to disk here. It's like, and then you just like debug it. Like wow. there's so much live debugging of like how can we like shut off a feature or like rewrite something right wow. then to like make it work right now because it's like a live video site. I mean, this is probably a terrible way to actually, <laughs> to actually build something, but it was so hard to predict uh, what our usage was, and we all, were also operating on a very lean budget from an yeah. infrastructure standpoint. By the time we you know when we sold Twitch, we had like three network engineers or maybe five network engineers. Like Hulu, which was le- less traffic, had I think a network engineering team of fifty. So we were operating; we were very underfunded the whole time. I mean, we raised forty-five million dollars over the course of life life of the company, but that's over you know six six or, or sorry eight years. And I would say that our infrastructure we were very efficient at infrastructure, but it came at the cost of like you know we never had excess capacity. Like we were oftentimes tweaking features in order to actually have the site stay up. Which you know is terrible from an engineering standpoint, but but it's but it was it was a very instructive in terms of it was a, I don't know it's like 
it's funny. I haven't thought about this stuff in, in years, but it was, it was, it was fun. Did you learn anything about managing your own psychology in that process? Sure. I mean, I don't think I implemented it super well. I think I'm much better at it now, actually. But like mm-hmm. at the time, there was so, so stressful because sometimes the site would just fall over and we had a major event going on or like the Jonas Brothers were streaming or something. And, and we were and we would be so stressed out. You know, we would be like just like looking at each other like this is like what can we do? We're like literally staring at like a, you know, 500 application error in, in Chrome and be like, how do we turn off features so that this live event can happen right now? Or how do we like rewrite or cache more things or like what can we do to like, you know, fix this? And and it was, yeah, that was very stressful. Hmm. Could have, it was oftentimes very stressful. Interesting. Is there anything else you want to add about Atrium LTS, Atrium LLP and where the project is going? We're hiring right now. Yeah. So that's a, that's a, I think it's a, a pretty fun project. I think it's a pretty interesting and unique uh, project, and and it's going pretty well. You know, Atrium LLP has interesting clients, a ton of clients right now, and and it's pretty cool to build software that people use every day. And I think that there's this very interesting data play that 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 to me is like the exciting part. As a if you know from my engineering side, it's like the, the thing that I get excited about. So, you know, if you're interested, just reach out and and uh, let us know. Great. All right, well, Justin Kahn, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thanks a lot. All right. At Software Engineering Daily, we need to keep our metrics reliable. If a botnet started listening to all of our episodes and we had nothing to stop it, our statistics would be corrupted. We would have no way to know whether a listen came from a bot or a real user. And that's why we use Encapsula, to stop attackers and improve performance. When a listener makes a request to play an episode of Software Engineering Daily, Encapsula checks that request before it reaches our servers, and it filters the bot traffic, preventing it from ever reaching us. Botnets and DDoS attacks are not just a threat to podcasts. They can impact your application, too. Encapsula can protect API servers and microservices from responding to unwanted requests. To try Encapsula for yourself, go to Encapsula.com slash 2017 podcasts and get a free enterprise trial of Encapsula. Encapsula's API gives you control over the security and performance of your application, and that's true whether you have a complex microservices architecture or a WordPress site, like Software Engineering Daily. Encapsula has a global network of over 30 data centers that optimize routing and cache your content. The same network of data centers are filtering your content for attackers, and they're operating as a CDN, and they're speeding up your application. They're doing all of this for you, and you can try it today for free by going to Encapsula.com slash 2017 podcasts, and you can get that free enterprise trial of Encapsula. That's Encapsula.com slash 2017 podcasts to check it out. Thanks again, Encapsula. Wow! 